Well, uh, welcome everybody and thank you so much uh, for coming to join us here. Um, I've got a very important announcement. The Twitter hashtag for this evening is hash LSE happiness. Please use this if you're about to tweet. And I believe it's written down somewhere. Uh, <laughs> now, um, I'm Richard Layard. Um, this is Bob Skidelsky. And this is Jan Emanuel de Levy, who's going to keep us in order uh, during the question time. So I'm going to talk first uh, for about 15 minutes, and then Bob, and then we'll have a, a, a general free-for-all. Uh, of course, the issue we're discussing is, is happiness the right measure of social progress? And this is an issue that Bob and I have discussed on and off for the last 10 years or so. Um, interestingly, during that period, the public interest in this issue has been completely transformed. It was a rather esoteric debate ten years ago. Now uh, it's absolutely everywhere. Uh, I'm sure you know about the Stiglitz Commission uh, set up by President Sarkozy. You know what David Cameron has been doing in Britain. But actually the most remarkable thing that's happened, uh, which has not been widely reported, is the UN General Assembly last July uh, passed uh, a motion uh, that all countries uh, should uh, give higher priority uh, to promoting the happiness of their citizens and there's a UN process in motion now uh, to make that more real. So we thought that perhaps the time had come to have our own private discussions uh, out, out in public um, and um, I'm going first. Um, let, I, I, I wanted to start, actually, with this saying of the week uh, from my diary here. I don't know, they are wonderful sayings of the week in the W.H. Smith diary. Uh, and this is a, a, um, a definition, this is H.L. Mencken, the American writer, a definition of Puritanism. Puritanism, the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Uh, well, I take the, the opposite view, uh, that the best possible world uh, would be the one in which there was the, the greatest happiness uh, and especially, of course, uh, the least misery. And I want to begin with two quite specific propositions, which I think actually should be the cardinal propositions for the culture of the 21st century. And the first one uh, is about uh, how we think about the state of a society, a group of people. Uh, and uh, I, I would say that for a society, the best situation is the one where there's the most happiness and especially uh, the least misery. Uh, that would imply, of course, that if we want a criterion for judging the progress of the society, we would look at how uh, happiness uh, was rising and misery was falling. Uh, but it would also mean, of course, that if we wanted to uh, so what should the government be trying to promote? It should be trying to promote that. The more happiness uh, and less misery. That would be the objective of the government. Uh, which is actually what Thomas Jefferson said uh, 200 years ago, that the, the sole legitimate objective of government uh, is to promote uh, the happiness of the people. Moving on to the individual, it's very important to get these things in this order. You start with the society, then you move to the individual. How should the individual be leading his or her life to promote the same outcome, insofar as each of us can do? 
to produce the most happiness we can in the world around us uh, and the least misery. And this would be what should be governing uh, the big decisions we take, what we work at, how we lead our lives, our family lives, our friendships and so on, uh, and of course how we resolve uh, moral conflict. So this uh, would be the way in which we conceived uh, of the purpose of our life. Uh, and I think that in a world in which so many people uh, lack a clear sense of purpose, uh, it would be an extraordinarily energizing principle if we could get people to think that, what, 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 what's the best I can do with my life? Well, it is to create the most happiness I can uh, and the least misery. So there's one principle for society, another for the individual. The one for society, it should of course be the fundamental principle of political philosophy, and the one for the individual should be the central principle for moral philosophy. Uh, now these ideas are not exactly new. Uh, as I say, they were commonplace in the 18th century, uh, in, uh, particularly in Britain, French philosophes, in the American colonies, and so on. Uh, these were commonplace ideas in the 18th century Enlightenment. But they're a lot easier to implement now um, because we know so much more um, about uh, what causes happiness, what really matters and what matters less from the new science of happiness. Uh, and we've also got another important uh, thing which I think is influencing everybody, which is that we've had 60 years uh, when we've been pursuing wealth greater wealth uh, above all else. I don't mean it's the only thing, but it's been the, the dominant idea that we've had for progress. Um, and yet, in advanced countries, we know from the measurements that have been made of happiness that uh, there has been uh, no increase in happiness uh, in the main uh, advanced countries. So I think that too makes clear the need for uh, a new set uh, and a better set, more relevant set of uh, objectives. However, uh, there are well-known problems with this point of view that I've been putting forth <laughs> so confidently. Um, and I want to spend the rest of my time uh, going through uh, eight of the, the issues uh, that arise uh, around happiness. So first, first issue, obviously, is what, uh, what is happiness? And by happiness, I mean the feeling, feeling happy. Uh, and obviously, uh, you can feel more or less happy. There's a whole spectrum from extreme happiness uh, to extreme misery. Um, feeling happy is feeling good and wanting to go on feeling that way or even more. Um, unhappiness is feeling bad and certainly wanting to feel different. So we, I think we know what these these words mean. People sometimes say we don't know what they mean. Of course, what the causes of happiness are, is happiness a banana, that's a different issue. But, but different people get happiness from different things. But we all know what happiness is. It is, a, it is feeling good. Uh, and it's a dimension of all our experience. Uh, and of course, we are interested in the totality of experience. So when we say we think happiness should be the criterion, we don't just mean you know, the peaks, we mean the totality, the balance of, uh, of highs, lows, and everything else uh, in a person's life. That's how we should be judging uh, whether the person is happy or not. Now, why would one think 
that happiness is uniquely important. That perhaps is the main issue, actually, for tonight. Um, I go at it this way, that if we thought of what would be the good for a society, we can list all kinds of goods. And the Marchesen and others have done this. Health, freedom, accomplishment, wealth, and so on. Uh, but I would say that we can then ask for each of them, why do we value it? Uh, and you can have a reasoned discussion uh, about most of these things. For example, you might say, well, health is good because people feel terrible if they're sick. Uh, why is freedom important? Well, people feel terrible uh, if they're enslaved, if they have no control over their lives. But if you ask the question, why does it matter if people feel good? It's the end of the conversation. There's nothing that can be said. We can't give any reason thinking it matters if people feel good. We absolutely know it. That is one thing that we absolutely know. That is uh, basically uh, what we are like, what we, what we, how we perceive our situation as humans. Uh, that it's self-evident and it's the only thing for which you can't give any reason uh, as to why it's good. Uh, it's intrinsically good. Now the next problem which arises immediately when you say happiness <coughs> should be considered as a good. Doesn't this mean that everybody should pursue their own happiness um, and we should be encouraging selfishness? Of course quite the opposite because if you go back to my two propositions I'm saying if we're thinking what is good for society, uh, what is good is to have as many, hap many people happy and as few miserable as possible that everybody's happiness should count equally when we're deciding what we would like to happen. And that should apply whether we're the, we're the government or whether we're individuals. We as individuals ought not to be just pursuing our own happiness. We should be trying to pursue uh, the maximum happiness in the world that we can create uh, around us. Most of us, uh, of course, can't affect the whole world <laughs> that we can affect. Uh, quite a few people, um, and that's that's it's not a it's not a gospel of selfishness. It's rather <coughs> a, a, a gospel of altruism because we won't have a happy society if everybody's pursuing their own happiness. We'll have it if they're getting their happiness from uh, helping to produce happiness in others. Now, then you might say, isn't that too utopian? And I would say no. Um, <coughs> Because I think this is how we should look at our human situation. That really, in each of us, there are two sides. There's a very egotistic side in all of us. It's part of our survival mechanism. Uh, we feel we're the centre of the universe. But there's another side, uh, which is different, uh, which uh, is benevolent, uh, which enjoys, actually gets pleasure from helping other people. Um, and it, it's certainly an important truth uh, that when people do good, uh, they generally feel good. Sometimes it's painful, uh, but uh, very often it's not. Uh, and brain science confirms that there's a reward to virtue, that virtue is its own reward, uh, that when somebody does good behaviour in one of these laboratory games, uh, their brain lights up in the same areas uh, as where they get other rewards, like eating chocolate. And so... Uh, it's not utopian to think that there's something in our nature to build on. And I think that the role of culture is to promote uh, the altruistic side 
of our nature over the egoistic side. That's the main function of culture, uh, to produce that result. Uh, and unfortunately, our existing culture um, is an excess- has become an excessively individualistic one, um, which is tending, if anything, to do the opposite, to promote the egoistic over the altruistic. Um, and this has got to be reversed. Uh, cultural trends don't, don't always go on in one direction. Many people throw up their hands and say, well, you know, me first has taken over and it can't be reversed. Not true. I mean, if you study the tra- complete transition in culture that happened between the late 18th century and the early 19th century in Britain, you'll see that there was a, a, an extraordinary change around. Um, so these things uh, can be changed and we can have a culture which is more socially responsible um, based on uh, caring but also on reason. So it's not the sort of hair shirt uh, social responsibility that we're trying to advocate here. We're trying to advocate sort of joyous form of social responsibility uh, which gives pleasure to the, the giver as well as to the receiver. Just uh, how many have I done? Four. I'll do the others more quickly. And there's a byproduct argument. Uh, this always comes up. And as you know, John Stuart Mill, who had his own problems with depression, uh, thought uh, that uh, we shouldn't ask ourselves uh, if we're happy because we'll stop becoming happy if we do. And there's some truth in that. We certainly shouldn't be gazing at our navels most of the time. Um, But if you think of what I was saying at the beginning, that we should be thinking about the happiness of other people, um, we're not going to help other people to be happy unless we think about their happiness. So the idea we shouldn't think about happiness at all is an absurdity because it should be the governing principle of our relations uh, with other people. And I also think that for ourselves, uh, we all feel discontented sometimes. It's good to look at it and use some of the strategies that are available uh, to overcome your, your discontent. Next issue which often comes up is fairness. And where is fairness and social justice if we say happiness is the objective? Answer is that these are not separate principles. Fairness and social justice are about the distribution of happiness. We want a world in which not only is the average happiness good, but there are not people uh, at uh, low levels uh, of happiness uh, and others at very high levels. We want a, a fair and even distribution of happiness insofar as we can have that. So I think that social justice and fairness should be intrinsic to the way in which we judge the happiness of a population. We shouldn't just look at the average, we should also look at the distribution uh, of it across the population and that's where I I certainly disagree with Bentham on that point. Um, uh, And that applies of course to us in our own, uh, own, own behaviour and lives and also to the government. So what about the government? Well, uh, when my first edition of my book on happiness came out, uh, it ha- had uh, some of the reviews were nice, but there were two. Uh, one of which was called The Bureaucrats of Bliss, and the other was called The Happiness Police. <laughs> um, but of course that's nonsense, because if you care about happiness, you'd soon... Uh, know from the science of happiness uh, that a police state doesn't produce happiness uh, nor does excessive bureaucracy. So uh, uh, that is a a nonsense argument. 
Um, but if you think happiness matters, then obviously uh, the role of government is to try to create conditions in which people can be happy. You can't force people to be happy, but you can help them to be happy. And that was essentially what uh, Thomas Jefferson said, which I agree with. And it's what's increasingly being sought in the British government. Uh, our cabinet secretary um, has recently asked every department uh, to uh, prove that they're giving more priority uh, to happiness in their uh, policies. And last objection, happiness can't be measured. Well, it can. Uh, you can ask people how happy they are, and those answers mean something because they're well correlated uh, with things you would think they should be correlated with, both things that cause happiness, like uh, whether you're employed or unemployed, uh, consequences, like if you're unhappy you quit your job or you quit your marriage. Uh, they're also correlated with friends' reports, and they're correlated with objective measurements uh, of the electrical activity in the relevant part of the brain. So happiness is not a fluffy concept. It's the basic aspiration of every human being. When people are asked what they most want for their children, uh, they say they want them uh, to be, be happy. So let me just end uh, on the thought of uh, how this can be brought about a happier society. Um, obviously, uh, it requires changes uh, in government policy, but even more, it requires changes uh, in the culture. And that's why a group of us have founded something called Action for Happiness. Gives you the website there on your sheet. Um, whose members pledge themselves to create more happiness in the world and less, uh, less misery. And if you visit the website there, you will find... Um, both the analysis which we offer of what are the keys to uh, happier living and a huge range of activities um, which you can do to make the world a happier place. If anyone wants to found a group at LSE, please come and see me afterwards. <laughs> and I'll just tell you a story. Uh, when we were interviewing the director uh, for this, this uh, movement, we had some wonderful candidates. And one of them had gone into the internet uh, to see if there were any other organisation uh, which had the word happiness in the title. And uh, this is the answer which came back on his computer. Your search for happiness has produced no results. <laughs> well, uh, with your help, uh, we'll do better. Uh, but please now welcome Bob Skidelsky. Well, um, of course, um, uh, on one thing I completely agree with Richard, and that is that he has uh, played a huge part in, uh, in putting happiness studies on the map, both uh, the intellectual map and the um, uh, uh, political map. Um, and uh, that, of course, is a great achievement. Now, British happiness levels, at least uh, as reported, have hardly budged since 1974, uh, while real per capita income has increased almost twofold, maybe more than twofold. So Richard Drew uh, draws the very sensible conclusion that at least above a certain threshold, um, income and happiness are unrelated, and that therefore increasing our income shouldn't be the main aim. 
especially in wealthy societies, of individuals or governments. And um, therefore Richard and other happiness economists, because there are happiness economists, there's a happiness institute, there are happiness studies, uh, we have happiness labels, um, have urged rich societies to shift their goal from maximizing gross domestic product to maximizing gross national happiness. In fact, the Sultan of Bhutan has made that a national uh, goal, one which uh, Richard um, has greatly approved of, only um, deploring the fact that soon after announcing that gross national happiness was the goal of um, the state of Bhutan, he introduced television, um, and immediately um, all, the, all the horrors uh, connected with television, crime, divorce, rape, uh, um, uh, violence, uh, escalated, thus um, destroying the Sultan's well-meaning intention. That might have given one call, cause for, for pause, at any rate, about um, the attempt to make gross national happiness one's goal. But anyway, um, the best situation is one um, in which uh, there's most happiness and least misery. That we've just heard. Um, and individuals have a duty to live in such a way as uh, to create the most happiness and the least misery. Now, if we're to make happiness the goal of individual and collective striving, uh, we have to answer three questions. First, what is happiness? Secondly, can it be measured? And thirdly, and most important of all, can it or should it be the ultimate end? Uh, of life. Well, Richard provides uh, in his book a very, very clear um, definition of happiness, the state of feeling good, or, and you uh, repeated that this evening. That is a dimension of all our waking life. In other words, happiness is a state of mind. What ultimately matters is what we feel inside ourselves. It is a simple, unconditional good. This is the classic Benthamite position. Sources or objects of happiness are disregarded. All that matters is whether you have more or less of the stuff called happiness. Well, let me flag up one objection straight away, which I will develop a bit later on. Um, uh, I don't doubt that um, we, we know whether we feel good or bad. I mean, I'm sure we all do, but why should, um, why should, um, um, uh, but why should we? I mean, the moral question is, why should we feel good in this particular set of circumstances? It doesn't address that question. And even more importantly, why should feeling good be the supreme value? Because it has to be the supreme, it's the, it's, it's the ultimate good. Feeling good is the ultimate good for which um, we have to aim, both as individuals and as societies, to maximize our feelings of feeling good. That is the goal of economic, social policy and individual action. Well, that causes me to pause very, very seriously. Um, as, uh, uh, as, 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 a, as a philosopher, I'm not a trained moral philosopher, but I think it would cause any moral philosopher um, to pause. Now the second question is, um, can happiness be measured? Yes, says Richard. How do you measure it? Well, you ask people, are you happy or not? 
they say they're happy, well, they're happy. Um, and you do it, um, you know, you ask them to rank themselves on a scale of happiness, and then you can do, not only compare that with what's, what they say in the past in answer to those questions, but across countries. And so you get a sense of um, how happy people are, how happiness is distributed, um, and also um, whether it's gone up or down over, over, over the period of time. Um, um, now, uh, sophisticated surveys for show um, use a 10-point scale. Participants are asked questions such as, taking all things together on a scale of 0 to 10, how happy would you say you are? Well, these questions create a number of problems. Um, what would it mean to score 7 out of 10 for happiness? Even if we assume charitably that it makes sense to assign cardinal values to states of mind, we still lack the information necessary for such an assignment. What, for example, do the two extremes stand for, 0 and 10? Um, is zero being boiled alive in oil together with your family? Um, is ten a state of perfect bliss? God having an orgasm in your brain, <laughs> as a certain drug dealer was heard to say, referring to the effects of his merchandise? <laughs> and what about five? Does it designate a state midway between, between the two extremes? Or a state of average happiness, and what does a state of average happiness mean? So I don't think that happiness is directly measurable. I would disagree with Richard on that. Uh, like GDP, you have some definitions of GDP, and you can measure whether GDP is, 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 is going up or down. But I don't think you can target happiness in that way, uh, certainly not directly. Um, but we can measure certain things that seem to be correlated with happiness. I mean, you know, people are happier when they're employed than unemployed. Um, people are, are, are made miserable by fa their families breaking up uh, and so on. But I don't think we need survey evidence to discover what these objective correlates are. I mean, we know, um, if we know that unemployment um, and family breakup make people unhappy. I mean, the, the, this is knowledge that comes from, not because of what they report, but because of what we know about how people function, about what, what is good, um, and where statistics on health, employment, education, marriage, friendliness, sociability, and so forth are available. There's no reason w why we shouldn't aim at those goods directly, rather than making a detour via happiness and sort of arguing that the only reason we want higher employment or greater sociability is because it makes us happier. Makes us happier. It may make they, those things may make us happier in terms of our self-reporting, or they may not. But we think they're good, and we think they're good because of our moral sense of what is good, not because of what people report about their subjective states of feeling. So I think it's a bit of a red herring to justify certain social measures, and in many of them I completely agree with Richard, the increase of the ratio of public goods to private goods and so on, in terms of people's self-reporting.
uh, states of happiness. Anyway, suppose we overcome these measure, measurement and conceptual problems. Let's sort of concede all that first, straight away. I don't think we can overcome them, but suppose for the sake of argument we do. We know what makes people happy, and we can devise ways of life which will increase their happiness. So there remains the question, then, should happiness be our ultimate goal? Um, in fact, our unique, unique goal to which everything else is a means. Sidgwick, philosopher Sidgwick, defined happiness as a surplus of pleasure over pain. In the Benthamite tradition, <clears throat> this implies that the aim of social policy, policy should be to maximize this surplus. For example, by removing all obstacles uh, to it, Paradoxically, according to the happiness economists, these obstacles include the accumulation of consumer goods and services because of the unhappiness produced by uh, competition for them. So what we should change, so we should change what is to be maximized from GDP to happiness. That's the argument. But apart from the difficulties of measuring and conceptualizing it, happiness seems to me to be a rather pallid goal. Uh, a sort of boring goal in a way. Um, we freely wish happiness on, our, to our, on others. Of course we do. We could hardly wish them to be miserable. And so happiness is a word we use a lot. But if asked what our goal in life is, few would answer, I think, it is to be happy. I mean, they may talk about achievement. They may talk about leading a good life. They may talk about success. Um, but basically, um, it's, it, it's a life in which we can take some satisfaction. Uh, it's a desirable way of life, in other words, which gives us our good state of mind, not the other way around. It's not that we want to feel happy and therefore lead a certain kind of life. It's that we want to do certain things, which then also gives us a sense of satisfaction. I mean, I think that's the way people will think, will, will think about it. It's true that happiness was Aristotle's ultimate end. But happiness for Aristotle wasn't a subjective state of mind. It was eudaimonia, which is roughly flourishing or doing well in life, like a plant which can be observed by a third person. In other words, a desirable state of being. And that's why we have two words, happiness and goodness. We intuitively understand that a happy life is not necessarily the same thing as a good life. But Layard, it seems to me, Richard conflates them. He interprets happiness in a Benthamite way. What ultimately matters is what we feel inside ourselves. So what we want is necessarily good. And that's what the economist does, after all. He's, he's, uh, he can't escape that training. Um, you take preferences as given. Um, and go on from there. Richard then has to explain why our preferences, as expressed in more and more private consumption, don't seem to make us happier. Well, you can do that too. GDP only measures goods and services which are bought and sold. But people want lots of things which can't be bought and sold, like friendship or leisure or community. Hence, Richard's recipe for happiness is to increase the ratio of public to private goods. And I think that's a good thing. I agree with it. 
But why should the provision of more public goods sail under the banner of happiness? Um, you know, they're, they're good. They, you know, these are good things to have better communities, um, to, to have more stable employment, um, to have more leisure. These are good things. Why should they be, why should they be all bunched together under the umbrella of happiness? Um, <clears throat> now, Richard very, uh, very um, importantly um, tries to divorce the concept of happiness from individual selfishness, and that's a very wise precaution. He wants to impose a duty on people to strive for the greatest happiness of a group. But the greatest happiness of, of the group can't, it seems to me, be a self-evident end for individuals for two reasons. First, because it makes sense to us, why should I make myself miserable in order to make the group happier? And that seems a valid question. Um, the Benthamite calculus only works, and, 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 and I'm, I, I'm not quite sure in what sense Richard denied that he was a Benthamite, but the Benthamite calculus seems to assume some coincidence of individual and collective wants. That gets over the problem of the conflict between rational egoism and rational altruism on which John Stuart Mill got hung up and on which Sidgwick got hung up. Um, and, uh, uh, and Benthamism has never been able to solve. Why should I actually um, strive for the greatest happiness of the greatest number rather than for my own happiness? And within, within, the, within the area of happiness, you can't, I think, uh, make very much pro progress on it. You have to introduce another idea, which is one of duty or virtue. And that takes you back to Aristotle and the Aristotelian uh, concept of eudaimonia. You can't just say, well, look, I want to feel good. Because it may be that, that working for the, for the good of the group makes you feel bad. You know, it may, may sacrifice lots of things in order to have to, have to do it. Secondly, the happiness, happiness of a group of sadists can't outweigh the pain of a tortured person. So working for the group, working for the happiness of the group, unless you introduce some side constraints um, deriving from different uh, philosophies, which is that it is morally wrong to inflict pain on the group, even for the sake of the general felicity, you can't actually um, establish the duty in the unqualified way that I think I get from Richard's book. Nor does Richard seek to identify happiness with pleasant moments. Instead, he talks about a succession of such moments, the quality of a person's total experience over an extended period. Here he seems to be confusing depth with persistence. Anything that falls below zero on the happiness scale is bad, a life of moderate contentment with no peaks and no troughs um, may, rank, uh, uh, may rank higher in, in, in the happiness scale than one, intense, one, one punctuated by intense moments of both joy and pain. Um, but would, would most people regard a state of moderate contentment um, in which there are certainly um, no, no, no bad moments um, as superior to a state of intense 
experiences, some of which may make one happy and some of which may make one miserable at the same time. And love seems to me an absolutely cardinal example of exactly such a state. <clears throat> In short, and I'm ending at this point, <clears throat> there's a big philosophical or moral objection to making happiness the goal of policy uh, uh, and especially the only goal of policy. <clears throat> This is quite simply that not all that makes us subjectively happy is desirable. Psychological feelings are certainly related to ethical goods, but they're not identical with them. So happiness may well be part of the good life, but it cannot be the good life itself. Uh, to give one example, most of us would feel it wrong to be happy uh, about the death of our, uh, our best friend. The appropriate feeling is one of sadness. But a happy feeling in these circumstances may be produced by drugs or alcohol. Indeed, Richard isn't against drug use to in induce happiness, uh, provided it has no ill effects. But that uh, simply shows up the impoverished nature of the goal that he is putting before us. Generally speaking, happiness is only good where it is due. Where sadness is due, it's better to be sad. To make happiness itself, independent of its objects, the chief goal of government, and uh, individual and government striving, government striving particularly, seems to me a recipe for infantilism. And Richard is not an infant. He's a very sophisticated and uh, uh, indeed uh, wise and clever uh, professor. Um, and much else besides. But why should, one be, why should one be diverted into making this the sort of goal of mankind? Uh, and, you know, a recipe for, infant for infantilism, we've had many literary evocations of it, not least in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Um, we don't want to banish the engineers of growth, only to see them replaced by the engineers of bliss. Thank you very much. We will now use our podia. Is it our podia or our rostra? Our rostra. We can we can just we'll allow ourselves one iteration and then we'll. Uh, uh, let you have a go. Um, you, you said a number of really important things, um, one of which, of course, is that we want to do worthwhile things, to which my question to you is, well, how do we know what is worthwhile? Uh, and I think that's a very, very important question. Now, my answer to that um, is we should think about what will have the most impact on, ha on people's happiness. Um, you say, you know, we should aim at different goals, but how, how do we know what weight to give uh, to different goals? It's, it's that issue of what is the relative importance of one thing as against another, which is the, is the basis of Benthamism. You know, it, how important is it to steal a sheep, to go back to this, somebody to steal the sheep? Well, it's not that important, and therefore, you know, that, that has, that's how he got at the, the principles of legislation. So you have to find out how important things are, how much pain is caused by the stealing of a sheep, not much, therefore don't 
you know, threaten people with death um, uh, and misery um, to stop it. So, I mean, the, I don't think you've addressed the fundamental problem of conflict of goals and conflicts of, of, of different moral rules also, uh, uh, which this whole approach is, is really fundamentally designed uh, to resolve, to give one an integrated view, which in, where in principle you can answer questions, what is more important than what else? Uh, I think that perhaps is the basic idea that, that, that I would say you haven't faced up to. You, you quite reasonably raised the question of, you know, why should I um, pursue the happiness of other people? And this raises the fundamental issues of where, where, where does a duty come from? I mean, I, I personally like the idea that the duty comes from how you would look at what ought to be done if you were none of the people involved, the impartial spectator, or, oh, the person who doesn't know which of the people uh, involved uh, he is going to be. Um, I think that, 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 that is the nearest that one can get to a, a rational basis for the concept of duty. But then, then how can we enlist people to uh, get them to carry out <laughs> their duty um, defined in that anonymous way where you don't know who you are? Uh, there's got to be an emotional basis for getting people involved and that is to, to build on that benevolent side of people. Um, and I think, as I said, I, I, I think it's quite important to think of what, what do we want from a culture. And I think the idea that we want from a culture support for the benevolent side against the egoistic side as a fundamental function of culture. I'm sure that's what Dickens would have said. Um, and I think you know, that that's, a, that's quite a profound way of looking at the answer to your question. We, we, we could find out, we could, we could have a reasonable we could give reasons why people ought to promote the well-being of other people. But then we have to find uh, an emotional source uh, which will enable uh, and actually lead people to do something near to their, their duty. And that has got to be something which gives them a personal reward. Uh, so I don't think there's an automatic personal reward the way Benson did. It's not automatically the case that by doing your duty you become happy. But we can, through culture, build up uh, a society in which people get more of their pleasure from doing things which are benevolent. And that's, that's really uh, what we're trying to create. But I think my basic challenge to you is how do you deal with this question of balancing what is more important than what when you are, are talking about what is worthwhile? You, 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 to say we have lots of different goals still doesn't tell you what to do unless you find some way of, of balancing them. Well, Richard, I, I, okay, how do we know what is worthwhile? Well, the quick answer is because we have a moral sense. And that moral sense is not something just peculiar to Western civilization. I mean, all, 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 all societies have a moral sense. And actually, when they, um, when, when, when you can, whether you look at Confucius or Buddha or Christ or um, or, or uh, secular philosophers of pre-modern times, uh, they all have a rough agreement on six or seven basic goods. 
Um, and uh, I, should, I should say that um, uh, um, my son Edward and I have written a book uh, called um, um, uh, How Much is Enough? Um, um, uh, Money and the Good Life, in which we try and develop this idea of basic goods. Um, which arise not from surveys of how people feel, but on what the greatest minds of, 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 our, of, our, of, our, of our human species have actually said about the requirements of a good life. And that's a pretty good start. Um, now, um, what about the fact, uh, what about the weighting of these, of these goods? Well, values conflict. I mean, the basic goods conflict. We do have to. We can't try and unify them all in a, single, in a single good. We have an idea of the good life. There are different elements in the good life, and we have to weigh in, in particular situations um, which, uh, which, which, uh, which particular value um, should, should uh, hold priority under those circumstances. The idea that values conflict doesn't mean that um, we are reduced to relativism. That we that you know your your view is 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 yours and mine is mine. Of course, we have to choose uh, between different values. Maybe um, the values may be in, incommensurable, but that doesn't mean that they're limitless. That we have complete freedom of choice to choose whatever thing we want, and therefore we accept that values may conflict. In the the circumstances will tell us, guided by our moral sense, which values. Um, should have a priority under, under, these, under these circumstances. Many of the values actually um, are not discrete. They, they depend on each other. <clears throat> now, you, you, you argue that, um, I think you just said, that um, the happiness goal, as the supreme goal, is an attempt to resolve this conflict of values. I'd say it was an attempt to circumvent it. Um, by pretending that there is some master, er value, a master value, um, which can actually make these decisions for you between the different desirable goals of life. And I'm just saying it doesn't exist. We don't know what it is. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it, it, we can't measure it, I would argue, and we can't define it. Um, all, we, all, we, all we have is any, something that makes us feel good. Um, now, I, I, I appreciate the reference to rules, um, and of course, um, rules um, does use the device of the impartial spectator um, in order to um, um, uh, in order to uh, generate um, his theory of justice. Mm. But you know, rules doesn't come out of a Benthamite tradition. I mean, rules is not a utilitarian at all, and I think to use rules in order to justify what's essentially a utilitarian approach to the question of justice and fairness just seems to me wrong. It just seems to me um, uh, a mistake. Now, I just end up with this point. From the 18th century onwards, the problem of um, when, when economists first started um, 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 developing the theory of self-interest as the magic key to unlock the wealth of nations. Self-interest, uh, which in previous generations, previous philosophers have thought of as selfish. They had a problem in um, how you justify morally um, putting self-interest at the center of your moral universe. And 
Adam Smith got round it rather neatly by saying that we also have the faculty of sympathy, that self-interest, I don't think he thought that sympathy was, was necessarily an extension of self-interest, but he also used the device of the impartial spectator, almost conscience, uh, to tell us uh, how to limit our self-interest and how to behave for the good of the, uh, uh, of the collective. But you see, I think all that was a mistake. I don't think I don't think we're egoistic and therefore, but also have 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 a, have a faculty or conscience that um, makes us sympathise with others. I think we sympathise or we are we, we we lead a good life because we're in some sense part of, of, of others. It's not that we're separate. Then um, need some um, some incentive to sympathise because we realise that um, if we act in a purely egoistic way, others will act in a purely egoistic way, and then society will break down. We're just part of, of, of a family, um, a large family and a culture. And, and, and I think Smith sets us all going uh, along the wrong, wrong lines, really, by making this kind of separation between egoism and altruism. And um, every Benthamite has been... Um, absolutely has, has stumbled over this um, because they, 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 cannot, they cannot really, um, unless they assume a coincidence between individual interests and group interests, they can't um, uh, answer the question which should come first. And you, you want, uh, you want um, uh, an er uh, an, uh, good but this uh, good actually depends on making that sort of making that reconciliation, and I don't think you've you've really um, um, suggested how it should be done. I think the time has come to open this. Up. <laughs> Take charge. Thank you, thank you, gentlemen. Um, with that, we can open it up to the floor. And my role here is really rather straightforward. I'll be uh, I'll be managing your questions. So if you have any, um, raise your hand. I'll pick you out. Um, wait for a second, um, have the mic come around to you first, and then ask your question. If I may remind you, a good question tends to end with a question mark. <laughs> so, so please keep to that. Thank you. With that, the floor is open. Um, the gentleman there. Um, would you agree that um, happiness can only really be full, like, fully understood and indeed enjoyed? by relating it to its opposite sadness. Uh, and on that basis, if we, were, if we managed to remove sadness from society, wouldn't happiness then become meaningless? Wouldn't happiness then become, become meaningless? Uh, I, 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 I would have a lot of sympathy with that view. <laughs> um, uh, because, because it would remove intensity, I think. It would remove the intensity of experience. And then I mean to say I'm happy would be, well, you know, smoke a joint or something. Well, I think that's a, a very, very depressing uh, way of thinking. I mean, uh, th there are people who are happy and who haven't experienced a huge amounts of sadness. Um, and it seems to me that if you're happy, you're happy. I mean, you, you may be happy because you're not sad, but if you're happy because you're not sad, you're happy. And if you're happy for some other reason, you're happy. 
I just don't understand the reasoning at all, to be perfectly honest. But how can you separate these things in, 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 a, in, a, subs in a substantive way? I agree you can separate them in a superficial way. You're either happy or you're sad. But so many experiences have, have, have aspects of both, simultaneously. I mean, that's just, I think, part of the ex uh, one's experience of life. And, and, and I've actually uh, given the example of love. As, uh, as, as, as one of those, uh, one of those experiences, which um, we would not, any of us, want to do without, I wouldn't have thought, and yet they're, they're intertwined. I mean, they may, they may not be intertwined in the sense that in second one you're happy, in second two you're in agony, in second three you're happy again, and in second four you're in agony again, but you know, on a reasonable view, that both experiences exist simultaneously, the experience of happiness and sadness. Am I being very, very um, odd in saying that? Um, I, I'm not sure, I, I don't, unless you may tell me I am, but I think that's I, I mean, our, I, our experience. Well, I, I, I've quizzed a lot of these psychologists about this, and uh, I wouldn't say they all agree with the following view, but the, the view which you were perhaps allowing us to have, that at any one moment, you can't be both happy and, and miserable, but of course you can fluctuate. And therefore, the, the longer the period of time that you take, the more you'll find that the emotions are mixed. Yeah, well, I mean, but you, you want us to take a longer period of time. Of course, well, then yeah, of course yeah, you'll yeah. find people who've had good moments and bad moments, and we're concerned with the balance of, the, of, 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 of all those moments. See, I don't think you can sequence them in that way, mm. actually. Um, I think that's, that's, that's a, a basic, a basic uh, difference. And I think, you know, there are many, many experiences where, we, where people obviously uh, experience supreme happiness, you might say, in, in acts of self-destruction. I mean, um, uh, martyrs. I mean, people who, I mean, all those people, all those people in, um, in, in, in Syria and others, I mean, they, they, they're doing something noble. They feel they're doing something noble in standing up against a, a, a tyrannical regime and being prepared to die for it. Where does that come into the happiness scale? I don't see it. Um, well, um, there are two issues. One is what they're fighting for going to be conducive to a, a happier society. And then secondly, why are they doing it themselves? We've got to separate those. I mean, you wouldn't want to conflate the two, would you? Right. So one is, are they doing something that will produce a happier society? Two, why are they doing it themselves? Why are they doing it themselves? Then we go back to the previous discussion we have. Why do people do things which are not always pleasant for but themselves? See, because, think, yeah. because they are for some greater good. I don't think they'd say, I'm doing it to create a happy soci happier society. I think they'd say, I'm doing it to create a better society. And that's the natural way in which you would use the word. I don't see why happiness has to be brought into it. Um, and, and then you can say, what do you mean by a better society? Yeah. They could say, well, a freer society, you know, <laughs> one in which people have more autonomy, one in which women have more rights, or something like that. That's the natural way to answer it, isn't it? Well, but you still have to say, uh, what, 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 is, what is, is your vision? I mean, of course, people have gone into movements without any clear picture often of what they were trying to produce. That's obviously the case. Um, but uh, if we were to, to ask, are they doing something that we think is worthwhile, 
it would have to be judged by, by the outcome. I mean, you're not going to say that you know, what the French revolutionaries did um, should be judged without any reference to what followed. No, and their <laughs> slogan was liberty, equality, fraternity. Um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I agree. The American Constitution had happiness in it, but you know, that's um, that the right to happiness. Yeah, but okay, we, I'm sure... Uh, we'll we'll move questions. on to uh, a second question. Um, the lady in purple in the middle, please. If you can wait for the mic. Hi, question to Richard. Um, you mentioned Amar Shasena's um, listing goods or capabilities, but of course he's also developed a very far-reaching critique of happiness as a basis for evaluating social progress and comparing basic human interests. And I think the thrust of his critique goes really to your point eight. So you were arguing that objective and subjective indicators of people's position generally go in the same position. Um, his critique seems to re relate to the exceptions to that. So he refers to um, victims of um, discrimination and disadvantage may self-report as being happy in very poor, poor countries, people may self-report as being happy. We might be concerned here about victims of sexual abuse or um, domestic violence as self-reporting as not being unhappy or not recognizing um, the, the various aspects of their position that we might expect them to. And from the news this week, I think one of the issues is if we use this um, concept of happiness to um, evaluate public services, um, the Care Quality Commission's work on nutritional standards, older people in particular, because we know from the happiness literature that happiness is kind of U-shaped in age, older people might say one thing about their basic nutritional standards, but another thing about their satisfaction. So I'm really just wondering what, what your response is to the problem of adaptation. And yes. Well, um, it, uh, I assume everybody can understand what, what the argument here. The argument is, if, if somebody has got a bad external situation, but they've managed to adapt to it, um, does, does that mean that that's less, a less serious situation than, the, than somebody who's, who's miserable for some other reason? Um, it seems to me it's extraordinarily important what people do and don't adapt to. Uh, and we should pay much more attention when we devise policy to what things people can adapt to and what they can't adapt to. I mean, people cannot adapt to chronic physical pain. They cannot ad adapt to chronic mental pain. And yet we, we more or less ignore it in our society. Um, they cannot ad adapt to continuous and unpredictable noise. There are lo lots of other things. They cannot adapt well to relative poverty. Um, but there are lots of things that people can adapt to much better uh, and uh, we've got all sorts of very bad priorities in our health service which are based on absolutely no interest whatever in how, uh, how people feel in response to different types of handicap, illness and so on. Uh, that's just a tiny example. We must really study what people can and can't adapt to. I'd only add one, one addition. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should be indifferent to people's subjective uh, feelings mm. um, of well-being. I, I, I'm just um, uh, uh, challenging your view that happiness um, must be um, the supreme ultimate good. Mm. Good. Another question. Um, the gentleman in the back there with the glasses. <coughs> 
Right, so um, it, it seems like in the discussion there's been the use of uh, satisfaction, life satisfaction and emotional well-being. Uh, pleasure wasn't mentioned, but a lot of what was described could be considered, you know, what, we, what most people would describe as pleasurable. Um, and a, a recent paper by uh, Deaton and uh, Kahneman talked about how, in fact, life satisfaction and emotional well-being have different differential responses to changes in income. So these clearly are, are two different things, and I'm, I, it just seems sometimes like you guys are, are talking past each other perhaps a little bit. So could you clarify, are you referring to emotional well-being, or are you referring to satisfaction or some, some mixture of the two? Well, uh, <laughs> this is a long subject. Uh, personally, uh, if you're asking what I, how I think we should pragmatically proceed when we're thinking about these things. I think well, if people say they're satisfied with their life, or if they're happy with their life, they're very similar answers. Those are very, very closely correlated. Or actually, are you happy these days? It's very closely correlated with are you, how satisfied are you with your life these days? Incidentally, these scales always have well-defined endpoints, like extremely happy, not at all happy, extremely satisfied, not at all satisfied. Uh, I agree uh, with that, but what do they mean? Sure, but they are, they, 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 there are words there. <laughs> it's not that there are no words at the end of these cards. But if instead of asking those sort of questions, you do very, very, very sort of time-bound diary studies of hedonics, then you're right, you get, you get rather different uh, sets of answers. Um, Personally, I, I, I can't see, if we're talking about public policy, that we can base it on how people answer questions about very short periods of time. So I'm quite happy to proceed on the basis of, you know, as far as public policy is concerned, uh, that we want to uh, have governments that um, promote uh, life satisfaction um, and uh, the, the reduction in particular of people who are very dissatisfied with their lives. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, uh, I, I can't see the person who asked that question uh, over uh, there. Um, <coughs> I think uh, the philosophic issue is, is a very simple one. Not everything that people desire is desirable. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be the heart of it for me. You may desire lots of things which may not be desirable at all, but which you know you desire, you want, you you, you want them because you, they make you feel good. Um, but Robert, what are you going to do about it? Aren't you going to have an education system which tries to discourage people from desiring the things you don't want them to desire because it makes them miserable because they don't have them? Wouldn't you rather do that? Um, Wouldn't you go through with, yeah, yeah, with the well, implications of that? Well, I think education is very, very important. But I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit suspicious of, um, of um, an educational system that um, uh, drains you of undesirable desires. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on to a third question. The, the gentleman in the back. Isn't the, the main problem really with the word, as uh, Lord Skidalski said, I think he described happiness as a pallid word. I perhaps would use three words. It's banal, it's bland, and it's superficial. 
and if we get hooked up in this word, that's the major problem. Without betraying my Scottish Calvinistic background, uh, <laughs> can I say that perhaps a word, you know, what comes to me immediately is the phrase self-fulfillment. In other words, the obligation to make the most of oneself. And in do so doing, that's partly conscience, which was only mentioned, I'm surprised, once. But that whole point of self-fulfillment can't come simply through individual or, you know, rampant individualism of, of the 1980s type. And finally, just a final point on adaptation. I mean, as Viktor Frankl pointed out, uh, man's capacity to adapt, even in the depths of the concentration camps, is quite extraordinary. And you know, ultimately, e even there, an individual's right to choose his attitude, his attitude to how he would react or respond to events was his and nobody else's. Well, yeah. uh, well no, I, 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 uh, um, I agree with what you've just said. Um, I think your definition of self-fulfillment comes closer um, than our translation of happiness to the Aristotelian um, idea of eudaimonia, which is flour a flourishing, um, and also to, to the Christian view. Um, uh, and um, I think to the view of most, most moral philosophers. You see, I think it's only economists who have made a fetish of happiness. Um, <laughs> uh, with, with some stalwart support from the odd headmaster. Um, um, but you but, know, uh, if, I, if I may say, yeah. uh, there is a wonderful book by Darren McMahon called *The Pursuit of Happiness*. Yeah, and um, I suppose about 600 of the 800 pages predate Adam Smith. I mean, happiness has been a central theme but, in philosophy yeah. throughout human history. And if I could just answer this this person's question about, I mean, your child, you think it's a trivial question. If I asked you, is your child happy at school? Is that a trivial question? It's the way you phrase it. It's the word you use. No, I'm just saying, I is it a trivial question? I think it's a superficial question, actually. Really? It gets actually the nuts and core of things. Happy is a very superficial word. No, it's overused. I mean, but, but, but I mean, Richard, I think what one needs to um, remember is that, of course, people have used the word happiness all through history, but they haven't meant by it um, a subjective state of mind. Um, that has not been the accepted usage of that word. We have translated it because that's the only way we can use it, because we're heirs to, um, uh, I would say, utilitarianism or Benthamism, or, and, and we, 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 we have a Benthamite. Um, I mean, the whole meaning of the word happiness underwent a change, I would argue, um, in the 18th century and, and subsequently. And then it did become more superficial and related solely to subjective states of mind. It was also associated with rom the Romantic movement and many other things. But um, I think previous generations, previous ages, didn't interpret happiness in, the, in that sense. They interpreted it as something flourishing, um, something that is desirable, a desirable state to be in, a state that gives you satisfaction with the way you're living your life, and so on. Well, well let, let me just comment. I mean, in, in the Western culture, I mean, Stoicism is enti almost entirely concerned, which was, the, which was the dominant philosophy in the ancient world, almost entirely concerned with how to 
achieve a calm state of mind. Buddhism, of course, entirely concerned with the subjective state of mind, how to achieve a calm state of mind. I would say a huge chunk of the philosophy, philosophical and even religious traditions are concerned with the achievement of states of mind. Well, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's that's a, 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 an argument, an argument we could have. We, it, it is 7.45. I think we've got time for one more question. Um, the lady on the balcony, on, on the first row. Hello. One minor correction and two brief questions. The U.S. Constitution does not guarantee happiness. Oh, it I'm guarantees the right to pursue happiness. I'm very pleased a, to a take good that distinction. correction. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so, an important distinction. Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> that was the correction, not the question. The correction. The correction. What was it? The right to pursue happiness. Is guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution, yeah. not happiness itself. Not the achievement itself. of it, I think. Not, 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 not the right to happiness. The oh, right to Just two brief happiness. questions. Right. It's the well-being public debate, not the happiness public debate. So is happiness the same as well-being? And the second question I have is, I don't understand why it has to be a zero-sum game. Why does it have to be GDH versus GDP? Why can't it be both? Just as government would not choose between keeping the peace and cleaning the streets, why does it have to be just one? Hmm. Maybe you should ask David Cameron that last question. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I can give you his quote. He, he is very emphatic that GDP is a means to an end. GDP is not an end. And personally, I think uh, I'm, I'm pleased that we have I agree with public, that. public I agree people with that. who uh, speak out uh, like that. Um, you, you, you know, if you have, to, if you have, but that comes back, of course, to my general position. If you have too many ends, you, uh, you've got to <laughs> um, figure out what the balance is between them, uh, and you may end up ma making most of them means uh, uh, rather than than, than ends. Um, as regards well-being, I mean, well-being can be defined in so many ways. Let, why don't we just stick to happiness uh, for the moment? So uh, that would be my answer on that. <laughs> well, we have two words. Whenever we have two words, they mean two different things. <laughs> Otherwise, we just have one word. Um, well-being has resonances which are, are not included in the word happiness. I mean, it's more than a state of mind, a subjective state of mind. When we talk about someone's well-being, we're actually talking about something more objective, um, not, not a subjective state of feeling. Um, I, how, how can one ask the question, are you happy? Uh, yes. Um, um, are you in a state of well-being? Uh, <clears throat> they're, they're different questions, um, because we, we talked about adaptation, which is, which, is, which, is, which is a very important way in which we can misreport our objective position. We can somehow, things about which we should be sad and unhappy, we can sort of make out that we're happy. But we wouldn't then want to say that um, uh, um, this is, uh, we're in a state of well-being. So I think just as happiness is not the same as goodness, so I don't think happiness is the same as well-being. And I think I'm 
uh, I'm very pleased that David Cameron has uh, thought of GDP as a means to well-being. Um, a general well-being index, um, I, I might um, even um, uh, be happy about. <laughs> Um, if, if that's your last word, <laughs> um, we're not taking any votes. Uh, um, thank you all very, very much. We've had some great questions. Um, <laughs> um, there, there is some literature at the back. Um, there's uh, the second edition of uh, <laughs> my book on happiness. Robert's book, unfortunately, is not yet out, but it's finished. It's finished. It's finished, yeah. but it's not yet out. Out next next year. But Robert's great book on the economic crisis called The Return of the Master. Is that out there? Meaning Keynes yes, is also uh, all right. out there. So thank you all for coming, and be happy. <laughs>